You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Esther chapter 6 tonight, and we're going to look at uh, this chapter together and uh, ask the Lord to help us here in just a moment in prayer. Um, as uh, we, before we get to that, just a word of note, uh, I guess from that last song that we just sang, I was talking with Brother Nick uh, Blandon, who would have been in the picture frame of what I showed you, that service, the first live stream service we had, Brother Kurt was out uh, this morning, skipping church, I'm just kidding, um, but I'm going to pick on everybody today, I guess, but uh, the, uh, this morning I was talking about that March 22nd was the first Sunday that we met live stream only and really believers all over the world. And Nick and I were talking about the fact that it feels a lot longer ago than two years ago. But I will say to you, the one thing that I've been struck by uh, over these last two years is we're only shaken if we choose to be. Um, with what we have at our disposal as believers, and I'll admit to you, I was. There were seasons where I just wasn't sure where to land on things, not just personally, but any of you had to lead a business or an organization or you were a part of that. Um, just so many conflicting messages and priorities, and, um, and I, that's the lesson I've learned, probably amongst all others, that song we just sang, is uh, I can be still. I can choose to be still and to be steadfast in the Lord. And uh, I hope the next time, not if, when it happens for me or for all of us together, that I will be uh, in a better place to stand. And uh, that leads right into our study tonight. Esther chapter 6 this evening. Hope you've been enjoying and not just enjoying as in it's an interesting story with maybe a wrinkle you haven't seen before in the story of Esther. But I hope also it's been challenging to you. Let's read the first three verses uh, as we set the table this evening. On that night, could not the king sleep? All right, so this is the very night between when Haman has just constructed the gallows that he wants to hang Mordecai on, and we see now a major shift in the story. On that night, could not the king sleep, and he commanded uh, to bring the book of records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. So we would be familiar with the first and second Chronicles. Um, we kind of associate that only with two books of the Bible. This was a very mainstream thing for, for kings to do, to keep these records of their kingdom and their rule. Um, verse 2, and it was found written that Mordecai had told of Big Thana, remember we joked about these names earlier, and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. Another name for Xerxes here that we've been studying. Verse 3, and the king said, uh, as he perked up, heard this reminder of what had occurred, what honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, there is nothing done for him. And so we're about to enter into the huge shift in the story that I'm excited to study tonight. Let's pray. Tonight we're going to look at stepping up in quiet seasons. So it feels like nothing's being said and nothing's, God's not moving and working. Uh, trust me, friend, he is working. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the privilege to gather again tonight. Uh, would you pray for a few that are out sick and under the weather you would encourage them and renew them, bring them back to our midst soon. And uh, we pray for these that are here, all of us in the room, that you would help us to buy up this opportunity to consider where our stand for you at times falters when it feels like nothing is moving, nothing is changing. Lord, that is when we most need to stand for you. And I pray that we would do that this week. If this week is a quiet week, if it's a week that nothing seems to move forward, nothing seems to majorly shift, Lord, in those seasons, in that setting, you have called your people to stand for you. And I pray that we would be willing to do so, trusting you and yielding to you as you work out your will in and through our lives. Bless this study, be honored in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There is a theory, I don't know if you've heard of this theory or not, it's called the butterfly effect. Um, and the basis of it is this, that basically you can trace... I was just in Alabama, they don't deal with snow, they deal with hurricanes, that you can trace any hurricane ultimately back to the flutter of a butterfly's wings. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that theory or not, I have. Um, and I was reading an author was just kind of summarizing the theory and then kind of his take on that that I think helps us as we process 
the little movements and variations in our lives that often seem random. The theory goes something like this. A butterfly flaps its wings at just the right time. This stirs the smallest gust of air. The burst of air grows and grows, rippling around the globe until it results in a chaotic storm. The author I was reading talking about this said this, I'm on board with the butterfly part, the idea that small things lead to big events. No one who has planted a seed can dispute the power of modest beginnings. He says this, it is not the result that I question, it is the randomness. Are, vict- are humans the victims of wing flaps? Do entire cities wash out to sea because an insect is active? Are we nothing more than weather vanes whipped about by faceless fate? Who finds consolation in a philosophy of happenstance and accidents? And then the author said this, which I would agree, I don't. But I do find great comfort in promises of a God who powerfully works even in still seasons. And so tonight I would like us to think about where God is moving things and doing things and believing, even when it feels like nothing is moving, uh, that our God is, is at the helm. He is working out His will in our lives. And I will tell you tonight, sometimes God is the loudest when He whispers. Um, the moments that I've had with God where I've most heard Him and seen Him and felt Him, and I don't mean that in like a weird mystical way, but in a way that I think aligns with Scripture, have been when He barely reaches a volume I can, I can hear. Have you ever watched a mother, especially you moms are good at that, that some of this is just a look, and there is, that is pregnant with so much communication. Us guys, it just goes over our head, and we just kind of, I know I messed up somehow, so it's my fault, or kids, it's your fault. But, but just, have you ever noticed sometimes that they'll bring it back to a whisper, and everything in the room kind of is brought down to grasp what's about to be said? I think God often, it is in the quiet seasons when he is most wanting our attention. Hey, listen to me, watch, I'm about to, I'm about to do something. And that's what we're going to find. In Esther chapter 6, this is in the middle of the night. Um, all of this story, kind of how it builds, and it, it's at a quiet moment. It's almost like there's a law in the narrative, and yet really I believe this is one of the most pivotal chapters uh, in the story of Esther. And so God is often loudest or most powerfully working when he is the quietest. Um, and so we see all of this building to this point. You have Haman with the decree, you have Esther coming before the king, all of this collides, and now God is going to begin to resolve this through um, this sleepless night experienced by a pagan king. King, By the way, hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, God was working in this bedchamber and using it to bring about his will, and God is doing the same today. Brother John was mentioning Richardson this morning in our discipleship group. Uh, we were in our discipleship sequence, the last three chapters of 1 Thessalonians and the first two chapters of 2 Thessalonians. Um, and he was referencing chapter 4 and verse 10 where it says this, study to be quiet. It takes study, it takes work to just check ourselves and what we want to say and what we think so that God can enter into that moment. And so I want to encourage you, don't fill the quiet moments with your vocal clutter. I'm a big, I, I took speech and voice and diction and all of that, and I cringe if I hear a lot of likes, like, like, or okay, or clearing of the throat. All that vocal clutter that we often fill quiet time with it crowds out God's voice and God's vision uh, for what he's wanting to do. And so the question tonight is in a world that tends to, even that's made up of believers, we tend to fill quiet seasons with our own thoughts or the noise of others. How do we instead give room to wait upon God and just to be faithful to stay and to stand knowing that he is always at work? All right, let's talk about two quiet activities of God's sovereignty that help us to be able to stand even when it feels like, again, God is absent, which is really the overview of the book of Esther. Number one, for a few minutes, let's talk about, first of all, where God gives to us in quiet seasons, quiet reminders. He reminds us that he's still at work. He, he brings things to, to remembrance that often we forget when it's a noisier season. Um, I think I've shared this story before, but... Um, you ever heard the expression before, silence is golden unless you have kids? Then it's what? Suspicious. If the house goes quiet, too quiet, there's something I'm missing. There's something that, that's happening that I'm not aware of. And I've told this story before. Heidi left me in charge of Ian, you know, first-time dad, and Ian was just mobile, whatever that was, eight, nine, maybe ten months. 
And uh, we have a long history with Sour Patch Kids. Have I told this story? I think I have. Um, I love Sour Patch Kids. They're my weakness as far as sugar goes. Um, and so my son from an early age was brought into appreciating them as well. And he was like eight, nine months, and I, all, I was probably watching sports or reading something, whatever. I'm sure I was studying the Word at the time, <laughs> deeply engrossed in that. And um, also I'm like, I haven't, where is Ian at? So I walked back. We had a little ranch. It was our first house that we bought. And uh, walked back the hallway and turned the corner. And I actually walked by the bathroom and then, wait, and backed up. And Ian was on his knees in the toilet. He was dipping his Sour Patch Kids in. You know how they have like that sugary stuff? He would dip, lick, and then re-dip. And uh, I, it, I actually it took me a few hours after Heidi got back to tell her what had went down, you know. Um, but quiet is suspicious. Does it ever feel like in a quiet season that God has forgotten us? I know for me there are times I go for a while and I don't really bump into anything that feels like a God movement or a God activity. And in that moment, uh, God, God eventually brings to reminder to my mind things that are true, things that he is doing that maybe I have forgotten. And we see God doing that in the text tonight. Let's talk about a couple of things that God does in quiet seasons, if we'll give him room, uh, that should help us in the area of remembrance. Number one, we should be willing to step up during quiet nights of remembrance, quiet nights. I don't know what the toughest part of a day is for you, but for me, the struggle often is in the night season. Some of you that are widows or widowers, um, some of you who don't have family close, um, there's all kinds of components to this. And then just some of us that maybe just struggle at night for other reasons, physiologically or psychologically, the nights can be so long, can't they? Um, and, and I just want to remind you tonight that even in those night seasons, God is working. And we find chapter 6 happens at what time of the day? It's a nocturnal narration. It's at nighttime. Um, and so God is working even when the sun goes down and when often we feel like we're alone when everyone else is sleeping, we're stuck waiting on God to do something. All right, two things about these quiet nights. First of all, there is a sleepless night that's recorded here, a sleepless night. Um, and we see <laughs> the, the king is awake. What's really cool about this is the contrast. Back at chapter 5, Haman, before he goes to sleep, he, ha- he gets these gallows in place, right? So Haman, the power broker of the day, he goes to sleep, and God keeps the king awake. That's really neat to me. So while Haman's sleeping, God's still obviously up and at him, and he is keeping the king up, and he's about to use his insomnia to accomplish his greater plan. Um, And so this king, trying to put himself to sleep, he has the the scribe come in and begin to read to him. Um, And I was reading, one, one author tried to describe it. I find this funny. Can you imagine this guy coming in? Oh, thanks. This is my role. Like, I'm here to put you to sleep. Sometimes as a pastor, I maybe feel that at times. But uh, just that, that this is his job. He's been keeping all these copious notes, and the only time the king wants to hear him is when he wants to go to sleep. Um, and he, the one author described it this way. He comes in with this big old scroll. He begins droning on and on, reading the minutes from the last council meeting in a flat nasal tone. Uh, six gates were ordered for Sushan. The king approved new helmets for the army. I thought this one was funny. Seven million paper clips were dispatched into the kingdom. And he's just going on and on. And then he starts reading about this story with Mordecai. Now I want you to think about this night. This is key. From what we know, the beginning of Esther until chapter 6, Xerxes ruled for 12, he had ruled for 12 years at this point. Think about how many things had happened in the kingdom over 12 years. And it just so happens that where the bookmark is or where the scribe maybe just opened up, you know, I know it was more of a scroll, but he just peeled that thing open and just so happened that the text that he chose included the story of Mordecai. Isn't that unbelievable? God cued that up. Keep the guy awake and let's move this guy over with the scroll and let's have him open to this because I'm about to enter into the story on behalf of my people. Don't tell me God is not in Esther. Now, his name not, may not be found in chapter 6, but his fingerprints are all over that scroll and that bedroom. He, he was working in this situation. And so often it's in the, the night seasons, the quiet seasons, that we forget that God remembers us. 
of all of the records of 12 years of rain, here we see them choosing uh, this section. All right, verse 2, as we read, it was found written in Mordecai. He, he gives, remember, they were going to kill the king, and he reveals it to the king. Verse 3, and the king said, what honor and dignity has been done to Mordecai for this? So they look from the story that's described to now what was the conclusion. And nowhere in the margins, nowhere in the footnotes is there a record that, that something had been given. Number two, jot this down. While it was a sleepless night, it was always also an inquisitive night. The king is asking, what, what happened to Mordecai? He's seeking an answer. And Mordecai, who had been forgotten, or at least what he had done for the king had been forgotten, now the king is wanting to know uh, what has occurred. It was a night of inquisition or questions that were being asked. Now, key point tonight, I said that Xerxes had ruled for 12 years at this point. It also had been five, listen, five years since Mordecai had revealed this plot. Five years. Five years had gone by and the king had never asked this question before and probably just the bureaucracy of the kingdom. It was a massive kingdom as we talked about back in chapter 1, but it had been all but forgotten. And for five years what Mordecai had done had not been noted. It had not been rewarded. It had not been in any way uh, responded to by the king who had been threatened. May I just say this tonight? You may want to jot this down. God's quiet uh, delays, God's quiet delays are often to give time for his answers to develop more fully. Key point tonight, God's quiet delays are often to give time for his answers to develop more fully. If this had not happened in the sequence it happened, we would never have, at least the story as recorded, where Mordecai at just the right point was recognized for what he had done. And tonight, I don't know where you're at, but I would guess you're maybe waiting on something with God something you wish he'd give you a breakthrough or some clarity or someone would give you the attaboy on the back because of something you stood for or, or, or sacrificed for, remember that God does not forget and he is working out his will in his time and his way. You know what that does for me when things get real quiet between me and God? It gives me the ability to keep trusting him and waiting on him and believing that he has not forgotten. It still matters to stand for him and to sacrifice for him. It is worth uh, the effort. All right, hold your place there in Esther for just a moment. Go to Psalm 121. All right, just a couple of books forward there. Psalm 121. And I want to just read the psalm. It's eight verses. And I would encourage you, if you have a sleepless night, this psalm has often helped me get whatever's racing through my head out of my head and just to lean on the Lord. I love this, this psalm. It's a great psalm. One of the songs of degrees that they would sing as they went up to the temple. Psalm 121, and hone in, if you will, the end of verse 3 and verse 4. I will lift up mine eyes on the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. So he doesn't even doze off. He doesn't even begin to nod of the head. Verse 5, the Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade. Upon thy right hand the sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. There's the night again. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. And so we trust in God. We trust in the one who never sleeps. And when you and I are laying in bed and we can't sleep, I'm telling you, there's something soothing about knowing that God does not sleep. I can yield that. I can abdicate that to his responsibility. I just had this yesterday. So I had, we got a lot going right now on different fronts as a family. And I don't know if you ever had this where you're thinking ahead. I've learned to fall asleep. I don't, this is, this is free. Okay. If this doesn't work for you, it's fine. But I found for me, I struggle to sleep when I'm thinking about what's out ahead of me. I tend to be able to sleep better when I'm thanking God for what's behind me. So where I'm, I'm not, because I'm just very task-oriented, so I'm like, you know, I could get up and get a few notes on that or get some organization around that, and I, I'm, or I'm thinking about what i got to hit the ground doing, and I'm thinking ahead instead of being in the moment that I, I, because I'm finite, I need my rest and renewal. So I had that Friday night. I had a lot going yesterday, some stuff Friday night as well, and um, couldn't sleep Friday night at all. 
And so I got up, and I don't know if you've ever had where you don't have sleep. I just got a pounding headache, and allergies might be a part of that as well. But I finally realized, you know what? Where'd this start? I didn't sleep. You know what? I probably should go to bed. So I did that last night and slept it off, woke up today feeling great. But I just, I got to the point I had to let go of what I was thinking and focused and even concerned about and just sleep and let God do his work. See, God never sleeps. And because he doesn't sleep, I can. And in quiet times and in moments where I wish God would move and work, he is working, rest in that, draw strength from that, let God renew us. Now, this is a key point tonight. Often we lack strength to stand for God. Here it is, because we're not sleeping when God alone should be awake and working. So some of our fatigue, some of our lack of oomph to stand for God is because we are not sleeping when we should be, and God should be the only one awake and working in our lives. It's letting go of that and letting God have control. And so if that's off in your life, can I encourage you, God works during the night, and when you wake up, some stuff has moved. Some stuff's been done. He's already setting up the table for that day that he's made. You can rejoice in it as you rest in him. All right, go to verse 4. Back to our text in Esther chapter 6. Let's look now at verse 4. So the king asked this question. Uh, The record keeper guys with the nasal boring tone say to him, nothing has been done for Mordecai. All right, I'm throwing the nasal. It's not in the Hebrew there. I just thought that was funny. Verse 4, and the king said... Who is, the, uh, who is in the court? Now Haman was come into the outer court. I just love how God choreographs this whole thing. To speak unto the king, to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. All right, number two, jot this down. Step up during quiet nights of remembrance. Number two, step up during quiet consultations of remembrance. There's about to be a consultation between a king and his pet leader, Uh, in this night season, and Haman is there early in the morning, and God and him, uh, or the king and him, have a conversation. Um, I don't know what you're doing with masks nowadays. We don't wear them maybe as much as we used to, Um, but I I saw this picture that, I don't know, this is funny to you. I think this is hilarious, but this is people repurposing masks, (laughs) um, protecting themselves from the sun instead of from COVID or whatever else we used to use those for. You know, sometimes we forget the purpose of things. We forget why we use things and why we do things. Uh, And God often renews that in us as we rest in Him. What is the purpose of the quiet season? Um, Just a thought tonight. What if the very thing that feels like God forgot it and did not resolve it is going to be repurposed by God for a greater purpose in the future? So the thing you feel like that, man, that's open-ended. God never resolved that. There was no resolution of that. There was no... Um, really dealing with all of that. Could it be God hasn't dealt with it yet because he's going to redeem that and use it for something else in the future? That's what he's going to do here. Uh, And so this consultation that's about to happen between the king and Haman, there's someone else moving behind the scenes in all of what's about to happen uh, in the story. All right, two things under that. Number one, we see in verses four and five, an orchestrated consultation. God put this moment uh, together. Just like they're reading in the scribe account and they come to Mordecai, just happen. Secondly, you have Haman who just happens to walk into the outer court of the palace at just this moment. It's just cued perfectly. There's someone behind this moment. There's someone orchestrating and pulling the strings of this moment. Now, why why does the king say what he says in verse 4? Typically, as he did like, remember Vashti where he had consultation or counsel? The king, typically, anyone of this era who was a ruler, they would always reach out for counsel. And so when he says, who's in the court, he's saying, who's here that can offer me input or feedback as I make this decision? It so happened that the one who was there uh, was Haman, the one who was about uh, to see the the script flip uh, in his life. And so in the morning, as we just read in verse number four, Haman came in to do what? To ask the king for permission to hang Mordecai. Um, whether it was on the day of Purim or if it was before that, whatever his agenda was, but he was going to clear that with the king, and yet God had different plans. What a comfort this must have been. I remind you that Esther was written to the post-exilic Jews. 
as they would read this. They knew the end of this story, but it was a reminder that God had watched out for them and had worked behind the scenes. And so as they, they also were processing the effects of being in exile and its consequences in their lives, God was working, and God in their day would work as well. And God is going to work in our lives. We need to be reminded of that tonight. I believe this with all of my being. I don't always believe this practically, but I have to because of the Word of God. Everything in my life, God has allowed. Every breath and every scar and every wound and every stab and every frustration and every high moment and low moment, all of it is a part of some bigger plan. I don't like it all the time. I don't love it. I definitely don't understand it. But I have to trust Him with it. And that's the struggle for us, is that we don't really believe practically with how despairing we are and negative we are and complaining we are that every detail is being orchestrated by God. And when I step back for a moment from Esther, yeah, I know it in Esther 6, but do I know it in my zip code? Do I know it in my life? Do you know it in your life? That's the struggle. And sometimes we chafe under and we think God has forgotten us and we're damaged goods or whatever the narrative may be. God is orchestrating all things for our good and for his glory. All right, look at verse 6. So Haman came in. The king says, let him come in. And the king said unto him, good thing Haman didn't say the first line. Can you imagine? Hey, by the way, I'd like to hang Mordecai. And the king's moving the exact opposite direction. Um, That at least stayed off some of maybe what those consequences would have been. And the king said unto him, what shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? And Haman, true to form, now Haman thought in his heart, to whom would the king delight to do honor more than myself? Number two, notice there's a consultation that's orchestrated by God. Number two, there is a manipulated consultation. There's going to be an attempt to control this and to direct it toward a selfish uh, agenda. Haman is about to attempt manipulating what God ultimately was controlling. And so Haman, because he thinks that the king is going to do something for him, everything was about him, notice the three things that he advises the king to do. First, he recommends, well, let's read them, verse 7. And Haman answered the king, for the, king whom the, uh, for the man whom the king delighted to honor, let the royal apparel be brought, which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, the crown royal which is set upon his head, and let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, is about to regret saying that, that they may array the man with all whom the king delighteth to honor, and to bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and to proclaim before him, thus shall be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And so he recommends the following three things. First, that this man should have the appearance of royalty, that he would wear the king's garb and crown and ride on his steed. He, he, he advised that. Secondly, that he would be served by one of the most noble princes, And then thirdly, that he would be honored with that statement that we see at the end of verse 9, thus it shall be done, this proclamation to the man uh, to whom the king delighteth to honor. So Haman sought to seize this situation for his own agenda. Haman never had enough. Likely he was the wealthiest person outside of the royal family in the whole Persian kingdom, and yet that wasn't enough for him. He wanted more praise, he wanted more recognition, and so he seeks to manipulate um, this situation. Psalm 3310 is one of my favorite verses as I process the world around us with all of its wickedness and all of its conniving and all of its manipulation. People using me, people using others, people manipulating situations. Psalm 3310, the Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. And then this is one of my favorite parts of the, of the text. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. It's as if they didn't even live. It's as if they didn't even connive. It just hits the wall. It, just, it, it doesn't even have any desired effect. It doesn't have any effect. And so God is able to bring even these uh, manipulations uh, of the world around us to naught. He is more than able. So application, we'll move to our second point tonight. Don't worry about what the enemies of God are whispering in the dark. God hears and will make sure that both good and evil are remembered and are revealed. Listen to me, this belief allows us to stand up instead of trying to shut them up. If I don't have to worry about what's being whispered in the corners of power tonight, then I can focus on just standing where I'm called to stand. 
I don't have the energy. I don't have the bandwidth. I'm a finite being to try to what's being said and who's doing what and all of that. We talked about that a few weeks ago. My focus needs to be on staying faithful to the Lord. And so we see in the first half of our text tonight, God is orchestrating all of the details, even on a quiet night, the sleepless king, the detailed reading, the entry of, uh, of Haman, all of this is being choreographed by the Lord. And so if God is in control of every corner of the world, then we can rest in him knowing that God is uh, working. Uh, Ephesians 1 verse 11, maybe jot down the reference and look at it on your own time. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the power of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God's will is going to be done. And his will includes the things that we don't like and make us wonder if he's forgotten us and if he's failed us. His will will be done. Rest in that. Let God give you the stand that you need to make for him. All right, go down to verse 10. And let's spend the balance of our time in these last five verses. Then the king said to Haman, man, I wish I could have seen this his facial expression here, this would be fun, wouldn't it? As he thinks, man, I'm about ready to not just hang my worst enemy, but I'm going to ride the king's horse. Verse number 10, then the king said to Haman, make haste, I doubt he did that, and take the apparel and the horse as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai. Can you imagine when he heard that name? To Mordecai, the Jew, the fact that even the king includes that moniker or that label, even so to, the Morde- to Mordecai the Jew, that sitteth at the king's gate, let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. All right, number two, one of my favorite sections of Esther. Number two, not only is there a quiet re- uh, reminder, if we'll stay faithful, Lord. Number two, there's a quiet reversal. There's a quiet reversal. Number two, a quiet reversal. Um, any of you, when you, uh, I'm just thinking like close to the church here, but have you ever seen those like... Uh, it's like a square sign, but turned on its side, and it's in yellow, which means it's a recommended thing on a curve where it says 35 miles an hour or whatever. Any of you like, yeah, right, I can at least do 70. I have race car driver in my blood. Uh, and you're not necessarily, 70 would be violating the speed limit, but you're just, you, you think I can take the turn quicker than others. My family would attest to now and then, yours truly does that, okay? There is a curve, though, that you better obey uh, the advised um, turn. And this is a picture of one. I don't know if you know what this is called. Some would call it a switchback. That would be more from like our railroad days earlier on where they would work a train up a, a, a steep incline, especially as it went across the Rockies. But this is a, um, what is called a hairpin turn, the shape of a hairpin. Some of you hail from parts of the country. I see the carnies shaking their heads, nodding. Some of us have been in places where this is how you get up the side of a mountain and you just you work your way back and forth. And I'm telling you, I don't even know if they have a recommended mile per hour that I've seen, but you don't go fast around these, okay? Or you don't go around it. You just go off of it. It's, it's called a hairpin turn. You know what's amazing to me about this story is how quickly it feels like everything's going this way, and it's just crickets with God, and then literally he just steps back in and just switches the whole thing. Can you think of an instance in your life where God has done that? Um, I can think of people, I've been there, it's an unbelievable thing to be there when somebody gets saved, where like it's, it's going over their head, and then all of a sudden it just clicks, doesn't it? Or someone that was holding out on God, and then they just break down and say, God, I don't care what anybody thinks, I'm going to follow you, whatever the thing is. But that switchback, that, that hairpin turn, and so we see this reversal of everything Haman had tried to set in motion, God now moves things in a different direction. And so he is able to reverse things. And if God is willing to turn, if God is able and willing to turn anything around, then why wouldn't we stay faithful where we're at? Why would we fade? Maybe today's the day he's going to shift things. I believe that as a pastor. I have to. Every Sunday I come in here, I think someone could get saved in our service. Someone could pass from death to life. A carnal believer could finally just, you know what, I'm all in. Do we believe in reversals? And if we do, then we're willing to stand and stay faithful no matter what anybody else says or does. Things, no matter how they're trending, God can turn the tide. All right, let's talk about a couple things that we, in the time we have left. Number one, step up during quiet honors of reversal. The honors. It's interesting how God honors Mordecai here. Step up during quiet honors of reversal. And so in this quiet season, Mordecai, out of the blue, receives honor from the Lord, honor from his worst 
enemy. And it's interesting, a couple of things about that. First, as we just <laughs> read in verse 10, it's an ironic honor. What irony that the very person that Haman wanted to string up is the person he sets up on the horse and has to walk in front of him, acknowledging him and affirming him and giving to him uh, this recognition. Haman comes into the court with the intention to seek permission to hang Mordecai, and now he marches out to give honor to the man he wanted to hang. Uh, look at the middle of verse 10. It's interesting that, as I alluded to briefly, notice that Mordecai is referred to as the Jew. This is the first occurrence. Uh, remember Esther, it gets out that she is a Jew. We see that being referenced. Mordecai had owned that he was a Jew to those that kept telling him to, to, to bow down to uh, Haman. But here he is referenced for, uh, for the first time in the book as Mordecai the Jew. It's also mentioned in chapter 8 and verse 7 chapter 9, verse 29 and 31, and then in the last chapter, chapter 10 and verse 3, he's referred to as Mordecai the Jew. Um, and so we see this, the irony of this, the man who wanted to annihilate the Jews is honoring Mordecai the Jew. Um, and, and that must have stung especially uh, to Haman as he gave honor to not just Mordecai, but to Mordecai the Jew. Apparently, this probably is included in the narrative by the, the man who wrote this book, the one who recorded this book, to highlight the fact that a Jew, uh, even opposed by Haman, was given a prominent position in the Persian Empire. And so just a reminder that God can elevate and God can give honor to those that others despise. Verse 11, Then took Haman the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback through the city, street of the city and proclaimed before him, Thus I visualize him mumbling these words, uh, just me. I don't, maybe he, he did it uh, dutifully and loudly. Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Number two, not only is this honor ironic, is also unsolicited. This is a key point tonight. This honor that Mordecai, as part of the people of God, he received and yet did not solicit it. He did not seek it. It just happened to him. Um. Sometimes I think the reason we don't stand where we should is because we're seeking our own honor instead of just being faithful and letting God take care of that. If I'm to receive honor and if I'm to receive recognition, he will make sure that that happens in its own time and way. I think Mordecai, I've tried not to be too hard on him, but I think earlier in Esther, Mordecai was seeking out his own honor. He was at least trying to blend in, if not even to, to, to rise in the ranks, to advance himself. Um, I think we see that, and yet here, where Mordecai is doing nothing to advance his own cause, uh, God puts it in his lap, this mysterious plan being worked out in his life where he is honored. It's interesting, Mordecai's name is mentioned over and over in chapter 6, Mordecai, 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 but he doesn't even say a word. There's nothing Mordecai says in chapter 6. Even his own enemy is talking about him. He is not talking about himself. God's voice is not heard in uh, this chapter, and yet God gives to this man unsolicited honor. To be perfectly honest with you, I think we often stand only when we can get honor out of it. You know the hardest thing about our walk with God is the most important parts of it no one else sees but him. Either you're in the Word or you're not, and God knows that. That's what makes prayer hard, isn't it? He knows our heart when we talk to Him. No one else, we can even be going through the motions externally, but He knows whether we're honestly striving to seek Him and to pray to Him. Much of our walk and much of our stand is not us standing before, you know, as cannon fodder be, before the enemy. It's just standing in our own space, staying faithful to what He's called us to do and be. And Mordecai, he's mourning. He's abandoned the palace and in that very moment, ironically, God honors him because he stayed faithful. He, he prompted Esther to go into the king and all the things that were transpiring. And in the midst of this, he just stumbled into, if you will, the honor that God would bring his way. Five years removed from his faithful stand, he now receives the credit that God had orchestrated. And so may I encourage you tonight, God is able to deliver on poetic justice, as we would say, not just in the Persian language, but in our language in the language of others around us. He's able to convey honor our way if we'll just wait on him and stay faithful to him, waiting on his uh, unsolicited honor. Question tonight. Think about this for just a moment. 
Are you ever in your life experiencing, can you think of the last time you've experienced, the mysterious, unsolicited favor of God upon you? If not, can I humbly submit to you, you're missing something in your walk with the Lord. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me if you just stay faithful, just things happen. Not, I'm not talking huge things. I'm just talking somebody affirming you, someone recognizing or encouraging you as they see your walk before the Lord. Are you experiencing that unsolicited working of God in your life? If not, give him time to work in all of those open-ended situations. Just stay faithful and let him in his time and way affirm you and confirm you and give to you honor uh, that only he can give. Uh, here's a statement I came across, may encourage you tonight, where you feel like God isn't giving honor or recognition or blessing in your life. An author I was reading said this, you may want to jot this down, God uses the hardest parts in our lives to prepare us for the best parts. God uses the hardest parts in our lives to prepare us for the best parts. And Mordecai has just been through a roller coaster. Can you imagine what he felt? In fact, his unwillingness to, to bow before Haman is what brought on now what his, his whole nation was facing, the, the ups and downs and, and all that goes with that. And yet we see here God uses the hardest parts in our lives to prepare us for the best parts. And I'll tell you this, even the hell on earth that we may have to go through only makes heaven sweeter, doesn't it? Those in the room with the most burdens pressing on you and cornering you and limiting you and, and restricting you, heaven's going to be only sweeter because of that. Uh, and so don't forget that. God uses the hardest parts in our lives to prepare us for the best parts. And Mordecai is beginning to enter into that experience. All right, lastly, number two, look at verse 12. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate. All right, so he resumes his place. Obviously, to be covered with the king's apparel, he probably had to discard the, the sackcloth and ashes that he had been uh, wearing prior. So he comes back to the king's gate, but Haman hasted. Can you see him stumbling and, and, and crying and mourning his way to his house mourning and having his head covered? Number two, and lastly, step up during quiet humiliations of reversal. So we see honor given to Mordecai. Number two, we see humiliation given to uh, Haman during this quiet season. Um, have you ever know? I don't know if you have dogs and cats, or you at least have had dogs and have had cats. I'm a dog person, barely. Definitely not a cat person necessarily. Maybe my wife, who's not a huge fan of them. No offense to those who have them. But have you noticed that dogs are very doting, right? Like they meet you at the door. Our dog always will jump like with his front paws on my leg and just, you know, smelling where I've been. Like I was at lunch today and he was trying to figure out what I had for lunch. And they just like, you're like the world to them. What's a cat do? Like whatever, dude, whatever, man. Like they just like, they have their, they, they could care less about you. At least it's been my experience with cats. The other day I was driving and I saw a restaurant sign that said this. I don't know if it's just somebody being funny, but it said this. If if a cat could text you back, they wouldn't. They just, they don't care about you, okay? And I just, that was tongue-in-cheek funny to me. Can I tell you as it relates to God, as much as you, you loathe, maybe you don't hate the enemy, but you hate what they do and what they threaten to do to you and everyone you care about, God feels more strongly. He hates where sin leads. He hates death. He hates suffering. He hates the struggles of life. He hates the enemies uh, that constantly uh, make us feel like we are at risk. He is the one who ultimately will deal with all of those threats. Our God will ultimately deal with all those who don't care about us. And listen to me, you can bank on their pride being confronted by him because all pride is a threat to him. He's jealous of his glory. He's jealous of his reputation. And so any pride is viewed as a threat to him and to his people. And so we can yield to him that he will ultimately humiliate those who reject him and those who attack his people. All right, notice two things about this. I love this part of the story. Number one, notice a retreating humiliation. So Haman starts out the morning, I'm going to hang my enemy. I'm going to be the man in the kingdom because the king's going to recognize me. And just a few verses later, we see him shuffling off to um, his home, retreating in humiliation. Haman wanted respect for Mordecai and instead had to give respect to Mordecai. Haman wanted to hang uh, Mordecai and instead he is humiliated before him. 
It's interesting to contrast the grief of Mordecai in chapter 4 where he also, his head is covered and he is mourning and now it's just from the mourning of Mordecai to the mourning of Haman. Key thought tonight, God is able to reduce those who seem to be on the offensive attack toward God's people to a quick and full defensive retreat in a mere moment if we will just keep standing long enough for the tide to turn. Like, I'm telling you, brethren, if we will just stay standing, the story is about to change. I hope it's today. I hope Jesus comes. I hope everything's resolved before we do sleep this evening. And it could happen. I want to be found faithful standing. I believe that God's going to humiliate and confront anyone who brashly rejects him. My responsibility is just to stay faithful, trusting and waiting for that moment, being faithful to him. And so he will cause those who attack us and those that provide friction he will put them on a full retreat. This is interesting. Notice the end of verse 13. I, I don't know if I've seen this before, our study for this series. Notice this little dialogue or this little comment from his wise men and his wife. So he goes back to his house. He's mourning. His head is covered. Notice now verse 13, an interesting verse. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. Number two, a foreboding humiliation, a retreating one. Number two, we see a foreboding. There's a foreshadowing. There's a sense of this is not going to end well uh, for Haman in the story. And it's almost as if they say here, if Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, then you cannot win. You're, you're fighting a losing battle. And in this shift, they realize that the fortunes have changed for Haman. I don't know for sure why they say this, but can I help you maybe fill in the gap? This is a thought. Maybe they had heard about previous people who had tried to push back or to persecute the Jewish people. And it clicks. This is not going to end in a, in a positive way. I regularly talk to people who have received Christ after being such adamant enemies of Christ, and they have told me, have you heard this before? We knew we were going to lose. In our world, there's a sense of defeatism. A lot of folks you see that are so hateful and spiteful toward not just Christ, but we who follow him, they already have that sense. There's guilt that's unresolved. There's that, that weighing down that happens every day, every moment that we live without God, the oppressiveness of that. This foreboding humiliation that's sensed in this household. The household that had the up and to the right was always their progress. And now everything is on uh, the downturn. Uh, and so we see God beginning to humiliate uh, Haman, not just through the retreat, but also through this counsel and this perspective given to him by his family. And then verse 14, as we finish tonight, it says, And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet, that Esther had uh, prepared. And so we see now, there's, this is Haman going as the sheep to the slaughter. Um, it's about to be revealed who he is and the consequences thereof. Those who project the most arrogant confidence about the future when God is quiet often are just mere moments from folding like a house of cards. Our responsibility is just to stay standing during that quiet calm before the storm. Have you ever been in a setting where a storm's coming and right before it comes there's that calm? A lot of times the quiet, right now, we may be in that. I would submit to you, I, I would guess that we are. It's the quiet or the calm before the storm. God's going to deal with everything that's wrong in this world. We just need to be standing. Instead of faltering or questioning or doubting, uh, we need to stay faithful to the Lord. One of my favorite statements from the Chronicles of Narnia, I read all of those books uh, as a young man and I don't know that I really got some of the allegorical aspects of them fully, but there's a statement said over and over in the first book especially, just this statement um, in reference to Aslan, who is a type of Christ, and the, the story of where he is killed on the altar and the stone breaks and all, I mean, lots of symbolism in that story, a gifted writing of, of the gospel story in narrative form. But there's this statement that said over and over, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. And can I tell us tonight, brethren, no matter how quiet it seems right now, Aslan is on the move. 
And those who believe it are standing. And those who claim they are and don't actually believe it, they're faltering. I want to be found standing. And I would invite you as well, if we believe Aslan or Christ is on the move, to be found faithful in this day. No matter how bad things seem today, when God feels so quiet, he is able in a moment to flip the script. In one day, in one hour, in one moment, our job is simply to stay standing. All right, go back to the text real quick, and I just this brings it to the New Testament. Notice the end of verse 9, and then the end of verse 11, where it says, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. The end of verse 11, Thus shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Can I remind you tonight that there's coming a day where all the quiet will be removed in every tribe, in every tongue and nation, in every person, every tongue will confess, and every knee will bow before whom? The man whom the king delighteth to honor. The man. Not Mordecai, not Haman, Jesus Christ. And so we must stand until that moment when we all will kneel before him recognizing his authority. And with this picture tonight, I don't know if, if you can make it out. It's not the best quality picture, but it's a picture of a little girl sitting in a, a hospital or laying in a hospital bed somewhere in Ukraine. I don't know that I got the exact location, but she's they're trying to keep this little girl alive. And you see all the sandbags trying to protect the windows. I, I can't even process what these folks are going through. And they've been going through it now for weeks and weeks and weeks. The only way I can process that and not get too discouraged by these kind of realities that many of us are facing, maybe not to the same extreme, is God sees that. God knows about that. And God someday will deal with that. The problem is we see these things and we start running after or running away from things instead of standing where God has put us. I can't go, I'd love to do something. And if God gives us an opportunity, we will. But I need to stand where I'm at knowing that God's going to take care of that. And if I have a part in that, great. But he is sovereign. He will make sure everything that needs to be reversed is reversed, that everything that needs to be remembered will be remembered. I heard this the other day from a wise pastor. He said this, you don't have to always tell your side of the story. Time will. And I think we're so worried sometimes about talking about our wounds and our issues and our battles we don't have to always tell our side of the story. We just need to let time and the God who's in charge of time tell that story. He knows how it's going to end. And in a moment, he can flip the script. Our job is just to stand. Here would be the thought, and we'll finish. This is, this is my mindset. If you would ask me what I'm trying to live out, here it is. Assume that God is at work. Move forward as if God is moving forward in your life. I'm raising teenage boys. I'm planting a church. God's led us to start a new counseling ministry. There are other things God's leading our family possibly to do. I'm moving forward because I'm assuming God is moving forward. I know he is. I don't always feel he is, but I got to stand. I got to step. I got to lean into what God's called me to do as a parent, as a husband, as a pastor, as a counselor, as a believer. I would invite you into that same mindset. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today.